Let us now open God's Word that He would teach us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And we'll read verses 1 through the end of the chapter and chapter 4 verse 1. Philippians 3 verse 1. This is the Word of God through the Apostle Paul to the letter or to the the church in Philippi. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith." that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note for those who who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So far, the Word of God. The text from that reading that we'll be focusing on especially are the verses 15 
and 16. In fact, there are only a couple of verses. Let's just read those once again so they're imprinted on our minds as we hear the sermon. So again, chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says, Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you were following along carefully in that reading, verses 15 and 16, which as I mentioned are the texts that we're focusing on, they might have struck you in the context as a little strange. They, they certainly did for me, especially verse 15. Let me explain why. In verses 1 through 14, you can see Paul describing to the Philippian church his his all-consuming determination to be counted with Christ, to be found in Christ. He says, I, uh, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, for His sake I suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. That's His all-consuming Purpose, And he wants the Philippians to understand that. Uh, you see it again in, in verse 13. He says, Brothers, uh, I, do not consider, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting all those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He wants them to understand For me, living is about pursuing unity with Christ. He knows he is counted with Christ. And yet he says, I have yet to fully forsake my own righteousness and to cling entirely to Christ's righteousness. And I have yet to be made like Christ in his death. He sees discipleship uh, in Christ as following Christ all the way to death. Embracing Christ's sufferings. And Paul wanted the Philippian church to understand that perspective. Again, I'm just giving the context here for why for verse 15 is, 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 seems strange. So Paul wants the Philippian church to understand that, that pursuit of his. Nothing is worth more than gaining Christ and being found in him. He said it in chapter 1 as well. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And in some respects, you can see in this chapter that that gaining with, or or that gaining Christ or being counted with Him, it does involve for Paul some, some effort, some deliberate purpose. That's what you see very clearly in Paul. He talks about straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the upward call. So there is effort involved in being counted with Christ. Now, obviously, we should be careful in how we formulate this. There is no effort in attaining one's own salvation. That is done by Christ. But there is effort in following Christ and counting oneself together with Him. You see two, two ways especially uh, that, that there's effort. One is in, 
is Paul's effort in forsaking his righteousness in order to have Christ's righteousness instead. You can see that in verses 1 through 9. Uh, he, he has a deliberate purpose to forsake his own righteousness, to have no claim for himself except the righteousness attained by Christ. That takes effort. It does for all of us to, to leave our pride, to leave our self-righteousness behind and to count ourselves with Christ. That's, that's a, something that requires a deliberate effort. And, and the second effort that you see in those verses are in, especially in verse 10, he talks about being made like Christ in his death and sharing in Christ's sufferings. So Paul wants the Philippians to know, this is my single-minded purpose in life, uh, to, to be counted with Christ and to be found in him in, and to do that in these specific ways. And so Paul urges them, then in, in verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example. He wants them to have that same uh, purpose in their lives. That's what makes verse 15 all the more surprising. Because then he says in verse 15, Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind, that we understand, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. It almost sounds as if Paul is saying, look, brethren, here's my single-minded purpose, to be counted together with Christ, and let those of you who are mature think this way, but if you don't, if you think differently, then God will reveal that to you as well. That's how I read this verse the first time that I read it, and I suspect that's how many of you also will have read this verse. And that seems strange. So let me first explain why that is not what Paul is saying here, and, and why that, in fact, makes no sense at all. One reason is, for one thing, verse 15 is a command. He says, let those of us who are mature or let as many as are mature have this mind, or think in this way, referring back to that single-minded purpose. That's a command. He says, if you're mature, you ought to be thinking this way. So that's not optional for, for the Christian life. It would make no sense for him to say, you know, those who are mature should think in this way, but if you don't, then that's okay too, and God will reveal something else. No, there's, there's one Christian maturity to which all of us are called. And you see the same thing in verse 17 where he says, brethren, join in imitating me. So he's not leaving them room for making up their own minds about whether this is going to be their perspective or not. He's calling them to imitate <clears throat> that way of thinking. So what then is he saying in verse 15? Well, there's a few clues in the Greek, and I'll point them out to you, and, and then from, those, from that vantage point, attempt to explain what this verse is saying. First of all, the you in verse 15, if in anything you think otherwise, it's plural in the Greek. You don't pick up on that in, in the English, because the English you is the same in, in the singular or, or the plural, unless unless you live in the south where you, you say y'all, or Australia where you say yous, 
But most of us just say you, whether you mean singular or plural. And that's a bit of a disadvantage for us when we're translating the Bible because we don't know if it's a single you talking to individuals or a plural you talking to the whole community. So we're, we're at a bit of a, a disadvantage there. But the you in this verse is plural. So he's not talking to individuals who, who might disagree with him, but to the community as a whole, referring then to differences of opinion within the community as a whole. The second clue in the Greek is that key phrase, if in anything, which tells us that Paul is not talking here about his instructions in verses 1 through 14, but now referring to other issues. If there's anything about which you as a whole disagree, then he says God will reveal that also to you. So here he's shifting gears from his instruction about how you as mature Christians ought to think to one specific application. Now as mature Christians, if there's disagreements among you, God will reveal those things to you. So he's changing topics uh, to some degree here and, and sort of making a point on the side, a specific application for a mature church. So in other words, you could rephrase it as, let those of you who are mature think in this way, and by the way, if there's anything in which you among you think differently, then God will reveal that to you. Uh, or or let, me, let me give a, another translation still. Let those who are mature think in this way, and if there's any issue in which you think differently among yourselves, then God will reveal that also to you. So here he's talking about areas where there might be disagreement in a mature church. There's four points that we can just take away from these two verses. The first point is, is fairly straightforward. Differences of opinion do exist within the church. I assume you all know this. On this side of eternity, that is simply going to be inevitable. It's true of every individual congregation, and it's certainly true of the Christian church as a whole. Differences of opinion do exist among us, and Paul is, is honest about that. He acknowledges that that happens. We have to understand, this has been a big theme in the letter to the Philippians, and it's never been far from Paul's mind. Uh, the reality is that, that Paul knows there will be differences of opinion on various issues in any church, and Paul was aware of that, and Paul was concerned that the Philippians might not know how to handle those disagreements. And you can see this throughout the letter to the Philippians. Uh, so let me just uh, run through that letter briefly and point out some of the other places where this has, has come up. Uh, already in, in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul, Paul says there, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That was one of his big concerns, his big prayer for the Philippian church is that their love for the Lord and their love for each other would grow and that it would grow with knowledge and discernment because like any church and, and especially a, a missionary church, there is much for them to learn. 
So there's this saying, maybe you've heard it, that doctrine divides, but love unites. But you should recognize that Paul's prayer for the Philippian church is that they would not only grow in love, but also in doctrine, in discernment. Paul doesn't set the two against each other, but sees them as needing to come together. We ought to love the Lord and one another, and we ought to do that with knowledge and discernment. So that's Paul's overall prayer for the Philippians. Then jump to chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, I'll read it in the the New King James, I forgot to translate my my manuscript. But chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, and, and listen then to what he says, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, And so three times there he he talks about uh, oneness, that one spirit, one mind, standing together. And he mentions one faith in the gospel. And Paul wrote this way because Paul recognized Differences of opinion will come their way. They're a reality that every church has to deal with. And they can be destructive if a church doesn't know how to handle those differences and to learn to come to agreements. And notice, that is the goal, to come to agreements. We need to understand that. Agreement is a good thing. It's one of Paul's biggest concerns in this letter, that that church would come to agreement, that they would be characterized by one mind, and that, that in, their, in their knowledge of the gospel, the Spirit would bring them together in agreement. Agreement is a good thing. It doesn't automatically mean, as some would, would maybe charge the church, that if they would say, if everyone agrees, then the church is just a big echo chamber, uh, and nobody thinks for themselves. That's not how Paul sees it. Paul says agreement is something to strive for. In our culture, because our culture celebrates diversity, uh, we tend to look down on agreement as, as if it's a bad thing. But it isn't a bad thing at all for Paul. You can see this again in, in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, and so forth, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So four times over, he says almost exactly the same thing, come to agreement. You can see it also... In, in our own text, if you look just a few verses past our text, in chapter 4, verse 2, he also says to these two ladies in the church, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So this concern has never been far from Paul's mind. And we need to understand this. Unity in the church does not simply mean getting along with those with whom we disagree, though it certainly does include that, but ultimately it means working to come to agreement in the Lord. It means coming to a point where we share the same doctrine and conviction. And Paul recognizes that takes 
work. It's not as simple as, as I've said what I need to say, I've said what I think, and, and therefore I've done my part in, in bringing us to agreement. It means listening to one another, it means being uh, forbearing with one another, it means being gentle. Paul ta- talks to Timothy about uh, speaking the truth in love. Uh, it takes hard work to come to agreement, but agreement is the goal. Uh, diversity, diversity is a beautiful thing in, in many areas. You can talk about ethnic diversity or diversity of gifts. Paul talks about the, the diversity of gifts that God has given to the church or diversity of personalities and even diversity of perspective can be a good and healthy thing but diversity of doctrine is not a good thing. It's not something to strive for. I've seen this uh, churches, uh, I think of one church in the States when, when, uh, when homosexuality or homosexual marriage was passed as a law across the States. I saw a church celebrating the diversity of doctrine that they have on that stance in their church. That's not something to celebrate. We ought to come together in unity and to have one mind. There is one truth and we're indwelt by one spirit. And so we ought to be of one mind. Now, saying that, uh, let me just back up for a second and acknowledge it is true that diversity of opinion can be evidence of a good thing. Because it means that at least we're thinking. It means that we're busy studying Scripture and coming to conclusions and applying what Scripture says to our lives. And if we're doing those things, inevitably there will be times when we come uh, to disagreements. Uh, There will be diversities of approach and understanding. Those are not something to strive for. Those are something to overcome. But they can be evidence of the fact that we're thinking and working with God's Word. So diversity of opinion can be reflective of a good thing. And if there's no diversity at all in a church, it might be a sign that nobody is thinking at all and everyone's simply being conformed to a certain mold of of thought without thinking through and working through God's Word themselves. And that is not a good thing. So diversity of opinion can be evidence of a good thing, but it's not a good thing in itself. And it ought never to be a goal. It's always something to overcome. The goal is agreement in the truth. If we are each individually dwelt by the one Holy Spirit, then we ought to be characterized by an agreement in conviction in the truth. Because that conviction is the work of that one Spirit. The Spirit doesn't lie. He doesn't tell one Christian one thing and another Christian another thing. He doesn't teach one person one truth and another another conflicting truth. Uh, there, there is one truth and we ought to be working towards agreement in that one truth. As we work towards that goal, there will be diversities of opinion because of our weaknesses and limitations. But those are things to work towards overcoming. The goal is agreement. So you can see that this is a big concern for Paul throughout the whole letter to to the Philippians. He knows there will be differences of opinion within that church as well. And Paul understood that those differences can very quickly turn into rivalries and conflicts. This is 
This is common sense, I think, for most of us. If you've been in the church for any length of time, uh, you know this, uh, that this very quickly happens. We have differences of opinion and they very quickly turn into rivalries and conflicts and sometimes political parties within the church. And so Paul's exhortation throughout this letter is, remember, you share the same spirit. You love the same Lord. And so be filled with the same love for one another and work towards having one mind, towards coming to agreement. So that that concern has never been far from Paul's mind. And now in chapter 3, he comes back to that theme again. So that's our our first takeaway from from this verse. Differences of opinion do exist in any healthy church because we do come to God's Word from different perspectives and with different experiences and with much weakness. The ultimate goal is agreement, but the present reality is going to be some level of disagreement on various issues. Having said that, let's go back then to verse 15. Again, I'll I'll read my translation of that verse. He says then, Let those who are mature think in this way, and if there's any issue in which you think differently among yourselves, then God will reveal that also to you. And, And then in verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. The second point we can take from these verses is that even before coming to agreement, and indeed in order to come to agreement, we're first called to Christian maturity. You can see that right there in verse 15. Differences of opinion, they will inevitably exist among us. And if we're going to work them out and come to agreement, we need first to be mature Christians. You can see that in verse 15, and you can see that in the the connection between the first and the second halves of of this verse. Again, let those who are mature think in this way, and the implication is from that starting point, then if there's any issue on which you disagree, God will reveal this also to you. If you're not mature, you're not going to come to agreement. So we can only expect God to reveal the way forward in our disagreements if we're first, each of us, pursuing Christian maturity. And if you want to know what that Christian maturity looks like, you need to look back to verses 1 through 14. That's the maturity that that Paul has just described. Christian maturity, according to, to Paul in those verses, is characterized by that that daily pursuit to, be, to forsake oneself and to be counted with Christ. If that's our life's purpose, to forsake ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our cross, as the Lord Jesus said, and count ourselves together with Christ, then we stop caring about winning arguments and we lose that, that natural sinful impulse to form those political parties within the church. If our lives are all about us and our identity is not in Christ, then we use those differences that we have to exalt ourselves and to to put down others. When our identity is in Christ, then it doesn't matter whether we win or lose an argument. The only thing that matters is the truth of Christ uh, itself. 
And, and it doesn't matter then if we, if we have to sometimes feel small listening to the wisdom of a brother or sister who sees things differently than we do. We can learn and we can be corrected because it's not about us, it's about the truth of Christ. And, and conversely, when our lives are in Christ, our identity is in Christ, then we're also able to correct a brother or sister in love without needing to exalt ourselves over them. That's the Christian maturity that's the starting point for coming to agreement. You can see this in, in Paul himself in his attitude towards some of the leaders of the Roman church. Uh, Paul is writing this, this letter from Rome and he's writing to the Philippians. And you can see back in, in chapter 1 that there were some in the, in the church there in Rome who had apparently been preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. And Paul says they're, they're even doing it in order to afflict him, in order to cause him suffering. And yet you see Paul says that he is able to rejoice. Uh, so you can see that in uh, verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, he says, and I will rejoice. So, so you can see that even for Paul, he's able to put the truth of Christ above his own honor and reputation. He's able to rejoice even when others are seeking to afflict him because it's still causing the name of Christ to be preached. So that's then the, the second thing that we want to see from these verses. Christian maturity defined by that life-shaping desire to be counted with Christ. That's the starting point for coming to agreement. The third thing we want to see in this verse is that God is able to bring us together in the truth. And indeed, God does do so for churches. Hear that verse again. Yeah, he says, Let those who are mature think in this way, and if there's any issue in which you think differently among yourselves, God will reveal that also to you. Or in, in your uh, New King James, he says, If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. That's a promise from God. So that unity of mind to which we're called is not something, we know it's not something that we can accomplish on our own strength. It's something that God must accomplish in us or it's not going to happen. But these words from Paul are a promise to us. If we learn that Christian maturity, then God not only can but will bring us together in agreement. He will reveal to us what we may not be seeing ourselves, and He will bring us together in unity and conviction in the truth. It's an amazing promise that you see here in Paul. Uh, where, there are, where there are differences of opinion or differences of approach in a church, uh, let me give an example. Let's say between uh, contemporary worship, so-called contemporary worship, and traditional worship. It's a very common division in, in the modern church. It's very easy for us when we see those divisions to, to despair. 
We see people digging in their heels and forming these, these so-called political parties. And even the leadership of the church can very quickly either find itself taking part in that division or otherwise simply giving in to the pressure from both sides and, and just allowing each side to do its own thing. You see this in, in many, many churches. You see it all over the place. Churches have given up on trying to come to agreement and they just go their own separate ways. And then, and then you end up with, with two worship services, the traditional worship service and the contemporary worship service, which tells the whole world, this church is not able to come to agreement and we've given up trying. That is not the way that God calls us to go. Uh, or, or sometimes churches altogether split and, and you end up with the, the conservative church and, and the liberal church and both churches simply accept that this is the way it's going to be. That ought not to be so. Instead of bearing with one another and, and embracing that hard work of learning to come to agreement and working to persuade one another and to see one another's perspectives, we just decide to go our separate ways and end up with, with two different churches, each with its own way of thinking. That is far, far from Paul's perspective. Paul instead promises that if we start with Christian maturity, God can and God will bring us to agreements. It ought never to be that we have liberal churches or conservative churches or contemporary churches or traditional churches. And, and always that's a situation that's born out of hostility and only breeds more hostility. You can see this within federations. You can see this within individual churches. You can see this within the church at large. Nowhere in Scripture do you find that kind of spirit, that kind of command that says, if you can't come to agreement, just go your separate ways, do your own thing, and, and stop trying. You can look at how often here in Philippians, Paul urges the congregation, work towards agreement. We need one another's perspectives. We need those differences of perspective that God has given us. We have much to learn from one another. In Titus 2, Paul exhorts the, the older members to teach the younger members. Well, that's not going to happen if they're going to different worship services and different Bible studies and perhaps altogether different churches. Uh, incidentally, that, that's also why uh, in the Canadian Reformed churches we usually set up these uh, geographical boundaries between churches. It's not that those are hard and fast rules that can never be violated. Uh, there may be good reasons for crossing those boundaries and, and going to a church in, within another uh, boundary, so to speak. But those boundaries force us to give an account for why we would do so. We don't simply go to the church of our preference or, or the church where we find more of our personality. And along that same point, if it does happen that there's a pattern of, of members leaving one of our churches for reasons that are not legitimate, reasons of personality or, or preference and going to another church, the consistories of both those churches ought to forbid this sort of thing. Both the sending church and the receiving church ought to say, no, you belong in the church in which God has placed you. It's an unhealthy thing when 
when we, we choose a church according to our preference and not according to, to where God has placed us, assuming that the gospel there is faithfully proclaimed. And when I say this, it's not that differences of opinion or, or differences of, of worship style or differences of evangelism approach, it's not that those differences don't matter. In some cases, they do carry consequences. But unless it's specific sin or doctrinal error, which the church has refused to repent of, it does not give us license to walk away when we come to disagreement. God has placed each of you here in this church, and it's all the more important to stay here if you do have differences of opinion. If you have a conviction that is from God, then you ought to share that conviction with the church in which God has placed you. We're called to work then towards agreement. Indeed, if such differences, sin or weakness, if those were sufficient reason to break fellowship, how long ago wouldn't Christ have left all of us on our own? Because all of us are beset with these sins and weaknesses. And so the promise here then is, if you who consider yourselves mature Christians would learn to think in the way that Paul has described, forsaking your self-righteousness and your own honor and your own privileges to instead be counted with Christ. If you would learn to think that way, then God will reveal the way forward concerning those things about which you disagree. That's a promise from God. So brothers and sisters, understand then that this is the church where God has placed you, even with all of its weaknesses and all of its failures. If you find yourself unable to see eye to eye with, with other members of the church or even most of the other members of the church, that does not give you license to go and find some other church where you feel you fit in better. It goes 180 degrees against the direction that Paul is calling us. Instead, the call is to come and work towards agreement. And so if God has given you then insight uh, that the rest of the church can learn from, if indeed it is from God, then you have a responsibility to use that as a gift for the church's blessing and well-being. And, and of course also in humility to recognize that you also have things to learn from the, the, the Christians that God has placed around you. And the promise is that if we're pursuing Christian maturity in that way, uh, like Paul, pursuing Christ above everything else, God will accomplish that agreement among us. That's true for the Christian church at large as well. It, it may seem like an impossibility that, uh, that the divide between, say, those who practice infant baptism and those who practice adult-only baptism it may seem impossible that that divide will ever heal. And some might say maybe it's time to just ignore our differences and, and for the sake of unity just, just come together and overlook those differences. And that, that's true in the sense that we should be able to recognize one another as brothers and sisters. We should be able to acknowledge the same spirit at work where he is indeed at work. And in that sense, you can put those issues to the side in, in, in the right context. But we should never stop working towards agreement. Even that divide is a divide that God desires for us to work on healing. It's a divide that God is able to heal. He doesn't call us to do something that cannot 
be done. He promises us that if we first pursue Christian maturity, that God will also reveal these things to us and bring us together in the truth. And that ought to also then be our attitude towards, towards Christians of other churches and other traditions. Neither hostility nor glossing over our differences for the sake of some superficial unity, but instead having a unity of love wherever we recognize the same gospel and the same spirit at work, together with a mutual pursuit of Christian maturity, which means an openness to discussing our differences and a willingness to work towards agreements. God can bring us back together. With that said, let's go to the fourth point. Paul does add one warning in verse 16, and that's our our last takeaway from these verses. Paul says in verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. There too, I'd like to offer my own translation. It makes the same point, but maybe it helps you to hear it better. Um, this, is, this is also the way the ESV phrases it. Paul says in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So let's understand the flow of thought then. Paul says, let those who are mature think in this way. That's verses 1 through 14. And if there's any issue on which you think differently, God is able and God will reveal that also to you. But let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, we can trust that God will reveal the truth. He will reveal the way forward as we pursue that Christian maturity. But we must also watch that we do not give up what we have received, what we have gained in the gospel. And there, there Paul, when he talks about what you have attained, he's certainly referring there to the gospel message that was preached to them right from, from the first time that he came to Philippi and which had then been strengthened through the other missionaries. In your pursuit of unity, do not give up the truth that you have attained. Not all agreement is agreement in the truth. Uh, Not all unity is unity in the gospel. Not all ecumenicism is ecumenicism that comes from God. There is a kind of ecumenicism that takes us backwards and further from the truth. And Paul warns us not to go down that road. Let us hold true to what we have attained. We aren't called to agreement simply for the sake of agreement. We're called to agreement for the sake of the truth and the name and honor of Christ. Now that's, that's not a license for us to now dig in our heels and, and refuse to listen to one another because we say, well, this is what I have attained and so I refuse to give it up. It's not a license to dig in our heels, but it is a reminder that the goal is the truth for the glory of God and for our joy. Don't come to agreement while giving up the truth. That makes no sense. That's going backwards. The goal is not to reduce our doctrine to the lowest common denominator, but instead to persuade one another in humility to come to agreement in all of the doctrine of God's Word. In our, in our pursuit of unity in the truth, we're called, we're warned not to let go of the truth in the process. 
In a, in a few months, we're, we're going to be celebrating, actually this month, we're going to be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The Reformation led to a division in the church. And yet we recognize that division was a step forwards, not a step backwards. Division is not always a setback in God's purposes. Some divisions need to happen, and God uses them to strengthen and build His church and His kingdom. Now today, there are many calls for that division to be healed, and that's a good thing to strive for. It's a good thing to want that division to be healed. We should try to work for that. That was the original goal of the first reformers as well. They didn't want division, but they wanted the gospel to be clearly heard. And so it's of the utmost importance for us as we think about healing that division that we listen to Paul's warning to not let go of what we have attained, to not let go of what we've gained. Any unity that's gained at the cost of the gospel is a loss. It's a step backwards. Christian maturity does mean putting Christ above ourselves, but it also means putting Christ and His truth above our desire for some external unity. It means treasuring Christ too much to lose Him to an ecumenical effort that undermines the gospel, uh, no matter how worthy that effort might be. We want that healing, but we cannot accept that healing at the cost of the gospel. Uh, the healing of, of the divide then between Reformed and Baptist and, and Protestant and Catholic, and even if you go back a thousand years to the East and West branches of Christianity, that's a healing that only God can accomplish. And the promise in these verses that is that He will accomplish that if we devote ourselves to the Christian maturity that Paul is calling us to here. But as we do that, we're, we're warned not to let go of what we have attained, if indeed it was gain. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged by these verses. It's true, there are differences of opinion among us. And that's true of us here as a congregation. It's true more broadly in the Canadian Reformed churches at large. And it's true even more broadly in the Christian church around the world. Those differences do happen. They will happen. It's inevitable. But the calling for us here is that, is, is that we learn to forsake ourselves, to pursue unity in the truth, and the promise is that as we do so, God will reveal the way forward. He will show us the truth. He will bring us together in one spirit and one mind, as Paul describes. And the warning then is, as we work to the, towards that end, let's never let go of the gospel. Uh, that the, and the gospel is what brings us together in the first place. It's because Christ lived and died in our place that we have unity with one another at all. It's because we belong to Him that we belong to one another. And so, let's not lose what we have gained because in Christ, we have gained the most valuable gift that we could ever have, the love and fellowship of the Father. And that's the basis for the unity that we have as brothers and sisters. Let's grow then in the knowledge of that love. Let's help one another 
to grow in the knowledge of that love. And let's make sure and help one another to make sure that in that process we never let go of that love. Amen.